Hello. How are we? Welcome for the first time or back to the Sprinkle Room. Um, how are we feeling? Nostalgia? Newness? All the above? Is this an upgrade or a downgrade? Is the uh... Okay, awesome. Boy, Jeremy, I have a lot of sympathy. <laughs> it's a hard crowd today, hard crowd. Um, maybe because I don't have like an accent like the video, so maybe that's what's going on. Um, anyway, if you don't know me, my name is Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister with RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. RUF is a Christian campus ministry that exists uh, at Davidson to serve the campus, but also to serve you all, wherever you are and whoever you are. And we, we mean that REF isn't like for one kind of person. REF isn't, um, it's, it's not just for one scene or one personal background or maybe just a couple. It's actually for every kind of person, every kind of scene. We, feel, we hope that you feel welcome no matter where you're from, um, no matter how you identify. We hope you feel welcome um, no matter where you are with Jesus and Christianity even. So um, whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, a believer or a spiritual skeptic, we're glad you're here. So thanks for coming. And if you're new, especially, thanks so much uh, for taking the time and making the effort. And I don't really know how you define new, but like you be generous with yourself. Okay, so um, this semester in large group uh, will transition. Uh, that's what we're doing here. And we're studying the life of Simon Peter in a series I'm calling Stumbling into a Run. Stumbling into a Run, okay? So really, the, the, the idea here is that Simon Peter's life offers a uniquely personal perspective on two fundamental questions about Christianity. Who is Jesus, and what is the church all about? And really, we're looking at it through the lens of Simon Peter, but I love that Simon Peter is this like, unlikely hero. Okay? He's this all-too-human bumbler and marveler, whose heart was white-hot and whose foot was often in his mouth. And there, at those moments, perhaps especially, Jesus loved him. Loved him in those moments. And Peter shows us the Christian life, its ups and its downs, its successes and its failures. The way that people can stumble with Jesus and stumble with each other, and the way that God can make those stumbles into greatness. And so we're continuing our series of Simon Peter, and we're looking at the third episode. Okay, We've gone, kind of gone roughly chronological. We looked at the first meeting between... Simon Peter and Jesus, uh, Simon Peter's brother, he's called Simon at the time, his brother Andrew drags him over to meet Jesus, and Jesus turns the tables and says, hey, I'm going to give you a new name, I don't know you, or I do know you in a weird way, and I'm going to call you Peter, Cephas in the Aramaic, Peter in the Greek, which means the rock, or rocky, okay, and so with that new name, several months pass, Peter returns to ordinary life, and then Jesus needs his boat, and they meet in his boat in the Sea of Galilee. And because of who Jesus is, um, Simon Peter all of a sudden sees who he truly is. And finally, we're, tonight we're going to go back to the Sea of Galilee, back to a boat, uh, but a different, different time. It's in the middle of the night, and instead of closer to shore, or maybe just a little bit farther out, we're in the, the smack in the middle of a five-mile-wide lake, okay? the lake called Gennesaret, or because it's so big, the sea of Galilee, and it's storming. So as opposed to the weather report in our email uh, about how to get to RUF, it's a little bit more treacherous, okay? So but before we go to that scene, uh, would you pray with me? Father, I am so thankful 
uh, for the opportunity to look at your word. There's a lot here. Um, it just it sort of felt like look preparing for this felt like there was just overabundance. And I pray that you would be with our hearts and with our minds, that you'd help us to sift your truth, that you'd help us to to be present, um, to be emotionally present, to be um, spiritually present. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd fill us, that you'd make us open um, to hearing your truth, and that you'd let it um, percolate into every part of our life. I pray that this would be the beginning of um, change. This would be the beginning of growth. This would be the beginning of, um, perhaps for some of us, an encounter with the real Jesus. And I pray that you'd be with all of us, no matter where we are. Um, and I pray that this sermon, this talk, this this text in particular, would meet us. Uh, Jesus, be more believable and more beautiful to the eyes of our heart. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So, um, I'm just going to go there. Life can be stormy, can't it? <laughs> okay, so we're just going to go there. Okay, many days are sunny, partly cloudy. Okay, they're busy, they're pleasant, they're maybe a tad bit boring. Okay? But then there's those days, multiple days in a row, where this metaphor holds, right? Life doesn't feel like it's working. We crave relief and we can't find it. We feel all our fears afresh and we can feel even our hearts hardening into cynicism and doubt. Writer Eugene Peterson calls these moments the storms of life. Okay, the storms of life. According to Peterson, life storms, a life storm is something that exposes the futility of our work or confirms its futility. Something that is all-encompassing and unmanageable because it's totally out of control. It produces intense inward unhappiness and stirs us to the essentials and reveals the basic reality of our lives. So there are moments in life, and I'm just going to try to illustrate this. There are moments in life when we see through our lives and we see through our life plans. Have you had this moment where you're, like, you're looking at your life and at the corner of your eye, you realize that your future degree, your future job, and your future spouse who speaks your primary love language might not actually solve all your problems? I mean, have you had that moment at the corner of your eye in the fringes? Or like when we face um, the wind and the waves of something traumatic in our lives, right? So perhaps it's a death in the family, or your parents are on the verge of splitting up or split up. You're failing a class, or you failed a class recently. Your friendship is ending, or it's ended. A person has abused you. Or, you know, a life storm could be something minor that builds into something major over time, okay? It could be something like a terrible boss. That work study's horrendous. Okay. They don't let me do my homework. The first few weeks of college, no, seriously, the first few weeks of college can feel like this, a growing irritation that gets more and more major, an enduring illness that just can't be quit, a nagging question even that seems to tug at some thread that threatens to completely unravel you. But you know, the waves and wind of the storm, I think sometimes this is where we fall short. It's not just an external out there phenomenon, okay? And I think many of us realize that these waves and this wind can be internal. It can be in our hearts and our minds as well. Um, and sometimes those storms that are inside of us are the fiercest and the hardest to keep going in the midst of. This summer, a pastor, Joe Novenson, kind of explained it well to me by telling me a story, which I'm always endeared by story. So let me share that story with you. Joe describes his day when he runs into, I think his daughter's eight or nine. Her name is Ellie. 
And he realizes that Ellie's not left her room for a while. And so being a good dad, he gets curious. He walks over, knocks on the door, and enters. And um, asks her a few questions about, like, what's going on and how she's doing. And he can just tell from Ellie's face and from those two questions that she's not doing well. He sees in her his own familiar struggles. All the signs that of his very familiar internal struggles with anxiety and depression at such a young age. And so he hurts for her. And he sits down and starts to talk with her, and he, but he realizes he doesn't have much to say. But then he has this sort of moment of inspiration, and he runs to the kitchen, and he grabs a few things, and he comes back. And he grabbed a styrofoam cup and a wine glass. Okay. And he asks Ellie, Joe asks Ellie, to take the foam cup to wind up and throw it as hard as she can at the wall. So she does that, right? She's an eight-year-old. She, you know, maybe she even cocks her foot. She throws it, right? And it just sort of spins and then gently kind of clucks against the wall and falls to the ground. No big deal. Then Joe hands her the wine glass and says, Ellie, go ahead and throw this as hard as you can against the wall. <laughs> and Ellie looks at him in the eyes and goes, Daddy, no. <laughs> that was going to shatter. And, and that's the point. Joe Nevinson goes on to explain to Ellie and to me, basically, this is just revolutionary for me, I can't get over this, that there are basically two kinds of people in the world that carry God's image and carry his glory. There are foam cup people and wine glass people. Okay. And again, I understand this is simplistic, so the Davidson qualifications, I'll get there, okay? Calm down. Okay, so neither is wrong and neither is better than the other, but there are differences between people, okay? The foam cup kind of person is durable. He or she is great in a crisis, right? Okay, this is the person you always call at 2 a.m. when you're stranded. They are hard to break, but they can be very insensitive, right? They can make terrible poems. They're horrific writers of symphonies. They're bad at that because they're insensitive. But then you've got the wine glass person who's very sensitive. He or she writes beautiful symphonies, thoughtful poems, but that person struggles mightily to be reliable because they are frankly fragile. Okay? And there's a lot of confusion going on under the surface, even if they might not say what's going on in their hearts and their minds. Okay? And then Joe says this really profound thing to his daughter. He says, Ellie, you and I are wine glass people in a foam cup world. You and I are wine glass people in a foam cup world. I know it's a really simplistic way of viewing people in the world, but I want to affirm this and add to it. Okay? Some people here, I, I would put myself in this category, are wine glass people. Okay? Davidson College can feel like a foam cup world. Right? It's all about stamina, it's all about efficiency, it's all about productivity, never wasting a moment, making the most of yourself, changing the game. Okay? But also, I want you to hear that internal storms, anxiety and depression, do vary from person to person, okay? Even as these same people in this same community experience the same set of circumstances, they experience, we experience them differently, okay? So the wine glass person gets self-indulgent and self-preoccupied, and the foam cup person can be a little bit insensitive about the differences of people, okay? And our passage tonight, I know, how am I going to get there? Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33, these verses describe a physical wind and wave storm. But that storm has the same effect as a, as a life storm, 
This crisis doesn't just threaten to break apart the boat that the disciples are in. It threatens to break apart every person on that boat, including Simon Peter, including Peter himself. But I want you to notice what happens. And this is what's so encouraging for us, no matter what kind of person you are, no matter what circumstances you're into or, or about right now. Notice that what happens in the seemingly hopeless scene, okay? In the dark moments of life, it is 4 a.m. in a relentless headwind. They have been rowing for miles, for, for hours, several hours, and they're still two miles from shore. Jesus shows up right then. And Jesus comes to us in our external, internal storms, amid waves and wind, amid fears and anxieties, and he does two things. He speaks peace, and he gives us rescue. And this is a very dramatic passage that kind of tells that story of Jesus confronting our fears and our cynicism by thematically getting at two different questions from multiple different angles. Two real-life basic questions about the real world, okay? And those questions are in your handout. First, verses 22 through 27, ask, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? What's he about? What's he up to there or here of all places to be? Okay, and then second, in verses 28 through 33, it asks the question, how do we respond to this Jesus? How do we respond? What's faith and fear look like? What's worship in the aftermath look like? Okay, so let's start with verses 22 through 27 and the question, who is Jesus? It's hard to understand these verses, especially verses 22 through 23, the very beginning, without some context. So I'm going to give you a little bit of context. Earlier in chapter 14, just before these verses, Jesus is totally exhausted. (laughs) He is absolutely spiritually, emotionally, and physically exhausted. And this is why he commandeers a boat to to take it to a desolate place by himself. Matthew 14, verse 13. But, you know, it's amazing. Jesus has this incredibly elaborate, pre-planned quiet time, and it gets completely interrupted by the needs that explode around him. A great crowd finds him out in this desolate dwelling place, and they start to, to, to nag at him. And he sees them, and, he, and, and we're told he has compassion for them, and he heals the sick. He heals their sick. And then, after healing them all day, the disciples tap Jesus on the shoulder and say, Hey, Jesus, they're starving. And Jesus is, like, winded, okay, exhausted. And he goes fine, what do we have? And they say, we've got some leftover fish sandwiches. Maybe five, max. And Jesus takes the sandwiches, he breaks them, and he feeds 5,000 men, plus women and children, with 12 baskets of leftovers. I like to think about what the disciple who like offered up their like, you know, lunch savings plan was like. You know, very upset, and then all of a sudden they got 12 baskets, which is a pretty cool investment strategy. Anyway, um, so finally after all this, like, boating and healing and feeding, Jesus gets back to his original plan, okay? Verse, but verse 22 tells us to do this. He's got to dismiss the crowds, and he makes the disciples get in a boat and row to the opposite side of the lake, okay? The word in the Greek here is very firm. It's about necessity. It's about force. It's a better translation would be compel. Okay? 
Then verse 23 informs us that finally Jesus goes up, went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came there, he was alone. And then later in the passage, we realize that he's alone there before evening, through evening, all the way up until the fourth watch of the night, somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. Okay, so that's a pretty big um, time. And I, I just want a couple of things. The primary reason th- these verses are belabored by Matthew, like there's a lot of detail here, is that why, why do we know so much about Jesus' semi-desperate attempt to get some peace and quiet with God, his Father? Like why is that like such a big deal? I, I, the first and foremost reason we're told that is because we need to know who Jesus of Nazareth is. He's fully human. He's absolutely fully human. He gets tired. It's in the British knackered. Okay. Um, he's emotionally, physically, and spiritually in his humanity tired. He needs time. Sometimes a lot of time alone with God to recharge, especially as he does ministry to the needs of those people around him. Okay. The secondary reason I think that Matthew gives us um, these details is for us to imitate. Okay. There's some sense in we can, after all, imitate Jesus in his humanity. We're going to talk in a minute about how you can't imitate Jesus in his divinity, but we're going to, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Okay. Does this mean that we got to make sure to boat to every prayer time? Does this mean that we have to get up on a mountain every time we want to pray? Or at least pray for several hours at a time until 3 to 6 a.m.? Otherwise, we're not doing it right. No, <laughs> probably not. Okay. I just, I just can't feel confident giving you that application. Okay, but Jesus' humanity does tell us a little bit about our humanity just by this passage. First, no matter who you are, no matter where you are with Jesus, we all have limits. That's part of being human. We've got limits. And sometimes we desperately need solitude and even prayer, especially when we're tired and especially when we're trying to be compassionate and care about the needs around us. Second, Solitude and prayer can and maybe should be interruptible. Okay? It should you should be able I forget this. Like I often have to remember that God can do things through me when I'm tired. When I'm not my best. And when I haven't prayed out fully or when I haven't prayed at all. But but and maybe this is number 3, there is also something to persistently pursuing solitude and prayer. Okay? Sometimes we gotta fight for time. We gotta say no to the people who are physically and emotionally close to us. We gotta compel people to go away. Uh, just think about it. We live in this like incredible age of noise pollution and digital distraction. The thing in my pocket can do something that took up a whole room in the 1960s. Okay, like I'm talking about my phone. Um, but like, look, that's the whole. There's a whole idea, and then we live in this sort of calm this place that is like you know not that big and there's all of our common spaces are filled with each other we're on top of each other here it's the same size campus since i went here and they grew up by 400 people <laughs> like what in the world um and like not to mention the fact that like uh all of you have full calendars we're busy that's what we are, and we're, we're sharing common spaces. So finding a space for solitude and a time for, for prayer can be extremely difficult, okay? And it sometimes requires multiple attempts, and it can be after the fact, right? Sometimes we want to have that moment of just 
solitude, visualization before before you know go time. But sometimes it has to be after the fact, and it isn't one size fits all. But I'm really, really convinced, more and more convinced, it's needed. It's needed not because I'm holy, but because I'm human. And I need to experience rest with God. Okay? But verses 24 through 27 insist that God, the God I'm looking for, for in this listening and speaking of prayer, another sermon where I'll talk to you about what prayer is, okay, is actually Jesus. Jesus is not only fully human, he's fully God. And the proof for this is in what Jesus does and says. Okay? He says, he does and says these things to wave beaten, exhausted, winded, desperate disciples, several of whom are professional fishermen, but still rowing several hours into a headwind. Jesus comes in the fourth watch of the night, somewhere after 3 a.m., walking on the sea. It says it twice in our passage. Walking on the sea. And immediately, Matthew's original audience that was Jewish, and even the disciples, who were also Jewish, they would have known what Jesus walking on the water meant. It was not a cheap parlor trick. Aha! Well done, Jesus! Got me again. You know, like, that's not what's going on. You see, in the first century AD, the average Jewish person in the area of Israel and Palestine would have heard the entire Old Testament read aloud every single year if they went to synagogue regularly. Every year, every Saturday, every Sabbath, the synagogue would read a piece of the Old Testament in sequential order book by book, line by line, verse by verse, so that in one year of a person's life, they would go through the entire existent Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. So this means while the prophets of old, like Moses and Elijah, certainly crossed bodies of water, this audience would have known that passages like Psalm 77, verse 19, Psalm 107, verses 23 through 32, and Job 9, verse 8, that they, what they tell us, God alone stretched out the heavens, this is to quote Job, and tramp, God alone trampled on the waves of the sea. That is only God. Only God in the Old Testament walks on water. Okay, so at, then, what, then Jesus says something that if you're in doubt about his identity as God, this is the sort of ultimate cementing process. Okay? He does it by what he says to his disciples. Again, I love that he gives his favorite command. The command he uses more than any other command. Knock it off. No. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But right before that, you might miss this. Okay? He's not, he says in the Greek, ego eimi. Ego eimi. Which literally means I, I am. Okay? Jesus is not merely saying hello repetitively. I, 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 he's a stutter. I am. He's actually saying the I am is here. Okay? The I am, or I am who I am, is the personal name of God in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. In the Greek, it's ego eimi. When the Greek trans, when the translation of the, of the Old Testament is in Greek, called the Septuagint. So Jesus is telling his disciples in the midst of wind and waves... I am the I am. I am self-existent. I am self-sufficient. I am the God of the universe who has power without limits and love without a trace of self-absorption. 
And so what are we to make between the correspondences between the Old Testament scriptures, that, that description of God, and what Jesus is doing in this passage? I have a seminary professor, a graduate school professor, that put it this way. If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and looks like a duck, it's most likely a duck. So Jesus is a duck. No, God. Okay, God. <laughs> See, that could get very confusing. Um, <laughs> get him out of here. Uh, so, <laughs> All right. Um, but unlike Jesus' humanity, we cannot imitate Jesus' divinity, okay? After all, we're not self-existent. We're not self-sufficient. And even Peter, when he tries to imitate this whole walking on the water thing, false. So the takeaway from this passage is clearly not go physically walk on water like Jesus. We've got to put that on the table. Okay? But Jesus' divinity does mean something for us, especially in the teeth of the wind and the waves of our lives. Just one takeaway about Jesus' divinity in this scene has to do with the passage's realism. I love how realistic this passage is. Notice that the storm doesn't stop when Jesus arrives. Jesus is there, and the storm is still raging. This, I love, commentator Dale Bruner puts it succinctly. The saving presence of God does not consist in banishing storms, but being present in them. The saving presence of God does not consist in banishing storms, but in being present in them. This, by the way, is the hardest truth of this passage. Jesus wants to be with his people when we're caught up in a struggle. But Jesus does not calm the winds. He does not calm the the waves immediately. He waits until verse 32 to do that. And I think that provokes a lot inside of us. I think there's like this fresh fear that God's presence, that Jesus' presence alone is not enough. And that fear can harden to sort of a skepticism or cynicism for many of us, whether we call ourselves a Christian or we call ourselves something else. Because you see the problem uh, for most of us, the problem that I have deep down with this passage is not the miracle part. Okay? If God's God, he shouldn't have a problem making a liquid into a solid. Okay? If God's God, he can make a dense object float. The problem that I see... The thing that we struggle the most is when God doesn't act the way we we think he should act. What happens when God doesn't act the way we think he should act? Whether that's disagreeing with our values or cultural sensibilities, or in this case, not taking care of suffering thoroughly and quickly. Stephen Crane, the author of Red Badger Courage, has a short story called Open Boat, and it's autobiographical, and it puts the struggle well. You've got to understand that Stephen Crane was the son of a Methodist minister. Okay, and he actually experienced something very similar to the scene that the disciples are having in this lake. But his was off the, he got shipwrecked off the coast of Florida, true story, and spent several days caught in the undertow, failing to row back to shore in this heavy duty waves and undertow. He was close enough, in his words, to contemplate the sand and the trees. He could see the grains of the sand, but he couldn't make it. Talk about terrible feeling. And this, and this caused Crane in his own life, and he talks about this story, to move from thinking that God is mean-spirited to actually completely doubting his existence. He writes of it in this way in The Open Boat. When it occurs to a man that nature does not regard him as important, 
and that she feels she would not maim the universe by disposing of him. This man, at first, wishes to throw bricks at the temple, and he hates deeply the fact that there are no bricks and no temple. Okay, so I'm going to read that again, okay? So again, the universe doesn't care, and what is the person's reaction? Okay, At first, he wishes to throw bricks at the temple. At first, he or she's angry at God. But then he hates deeply, or she hates deeply the fact that there are no bricks and no temple. There's no God. But here's the thing. What if God not working the way we think he should? What if God not agreeing with some of our particular culture's particular sensibilities were actually proof of his independent and universal existence? I mean, what if God arguing with us, disagreeing with us, was actually a sign of his, say, transcendence? That he's both above culture and above time, that he created both. Okay, after all, doesn't a God who walks on water have to be bigger than our personal wishes? Okay, doesn't the I am who I am need to offend and transcend our one cultural moment? By the way, um, I can't wait till we're all 80 and we ask our grandkids, what, what do we say and do that's completely offensive? We have no idea. They will be so disgusted by things that we think are so cool and so sensitive. This has happened over and over and over again in time. <laughs> I, can't, I just remember walking, driving around with my, my grandmother who's in like rural Virginia and just cringing in the back seat. Okay, she thought she was just being eloquent. Anyway, I, I, I just really want to say it this way. I appreciate the way that another artist, this guy is named W.H. Auden. He's a poet and a Christian. He discusses his own faith, and he's really real, okay? He struggles with severe depression, loneliness. Um, he struggles with his own sexuality, and he puts it really beautifully. He says, I believe in these moments. I believe in God in these moments because he fulfills none of my dreams. Because he, in every respect, is the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. That's what he wrote about God, W.H. Auden, uh, an English poet. Okay, He says, I believe because he doesn't fulfill my dreams. I believe because he actually, in those moments, is the opposite of who I would wish him to be. He's not a figment of my imagination. But look, in the midst of Jesus' power and mystery, let's not lose Jesus' incredible compassion. It's like it's actually Jesus' tenderness that best speaks to our fears and our doubts. I can give you intellectual arguments all day, but Jesus' intimate care in verses 28 through 33 fittingly begins to answer some of these objections. And I think it also answers our final question of how do we respond? Okay, how do we respond to this Jesus? Okay, and our response is seen through the interaction between Jesus and Peter. There's a sense in which we've got to put ourselves in that scene with him. Okay, we've got to feel the physical gale force wind against our faces. We've got to watch the waves crest over the sides of the boat. We've got to shout over the spray with him into the howling half-darkness in the general direction of a man who looks like a ghost, who looks like an apparition. Lord, if it's you, command me to come out in the water. But I just, this is like the most puzzling expression in the entire passage. What is he getting at? <laughs> is that like some sort of test? Like, um, He's, he's like not sure if that apparition is really Jesus. And so he's saying something like, if it's really you out there, do something only you could do. Go, 
Is that kind of what's going on? Or like, um, I, I guess I just wonder, because, you know, after all, like, Peter doesn't want to really want to be fully doubting that it's Jesus, but at the same time, he's just not sure. Or maybe Peter is like half foolishly, half faithfully caught up in this moment of seeing Jesus suspended like that in the gloom. And he wants to be like Jesus even then. And it, maybe it has some sort of pride to it. Or maybe he just wants to be with Jesus in that moment, even then, out of friendship and perhaps his neediness. I mean, multiple people have said multiple things. Whatever the case, Peter puts one tentative foot in front of the other out of the boat, and perhaps even feeling the water's wetness between the toes of his skidding sandals, Peter walks slowly towards Jesus. And verse 30 tells us that Peter almost makes it all the way to Jesus. He's actually really, really close. Okay? That's what I mean. All Jesus does do is reach out. But just like God doesn't ultimately remove all of the storm, Peter's hesitation tells us that in the most triumphant moments of faith, there are still doubts and fears that exist. They are present as the anxious wind and the anxious waves in the scene, but our doubts and our fears are also present in the way that we fix our attention on our circumstances, on our feet, on ourselves, instead of Jesus, right? To finish the story, you know, it's like this wily coyote moment from a cartoon. He looks down, and then he starts to sink. And when he looks, he starts to sink in the Sea of Galilee. And I, I guess I'm just kind of like miffed, because this is how most of the times that we approach this passage, most of the discussions of this passage, uh, of faith in this passage, end. Okay, it ends with like this warning, this exhortation. Keep your eyes off yourself. Keep your eyes off your circumstances. Keep them fixed firmly on Jesus. And of course, that's great advice. That's awesome advice, especially in the midst of suffering. Where's Jesus? Look for him. But it also naturally leads to this idea that Christian faith is just another form of human greatness. <laughs> Again, I really appreciate the way Joe Novenson, the guy I quoted earlier, puts it. We believe greatness on any level equals doing the most right and the least wrong for the longest amount of time under the largest amount, number of circumstances. Okay, I'll say it again. We believe greatness on any level equals doing the most right and the least wrong for the longest amount of time under the largest possible number of circumstances. But greatness in the realm of the Christian gospel and the kingdom of God is entirely something different. You see, we want the hashtag blessed life, right? And so we try and we try to get it. We try to get it with schoolwork and with relationships to do well and faith. We try to get it right. And we try to get it right so that life will go well for us. And this leads us to get incredibly proud or incredibly discouraged by the way that life goes. But think about the disciples. Perhaps you, like the disciples, were told to get in a boat at that hour on that day, and you were sent across the Sea of Galilee into a storm. You were sent into a storm. It isn't your fault, but it feels like your fault. Right now, that's where you are. In that moment, we want pain relief. We want it quickly. We want it thoroughly. We want God to come in and soothe the disappointment and fix the defeat to remove the storm stat. But what if the Christian faith, what if Christianity is not primarily about us keeping our eyes on Christ? 
what if the Christian faith is, or the Christian Christianity is primarily about Jesus keeping his eyes on us? What if the point of this passage is Jesus immediately reaching out his hand, taking hold of us, us sinking under the weight of our own self-efforts, all in the very teeth of waves and winds and life storms? I, I, I think sometimes we think that Christianity is a staring contest. Sometimes Christianity is treading water to get back onto the boat. But Jesus is telling us that faith and worship, even mature faith, even mature worship, always begins with the cry of Peter. Lord, save me. And Lord, save me is not a moment of negotiation. It's a moment of surrender. But please see the compassion. Please see the power of Jesus in that moment. He is mighty to save. But he also spares the lecture. Okay? He spares letting, letting Peter go underneath the surface and pulling him up as some sort of object lesson. Ha <laughs> ha, Peter, like, you know, don't jump out of the boat next time. Okay? There's a face in the darkness. There's a hand in the sinking that holds us fast. Even in his rebuke of Peter, it's actually less of a rebuke and more of a stirring question. Why? To what purpose did you doubt? Don't you know I've got you? I've got you in your pride. I've got you in your despair. I've got you even in the suffering. Look, Peter came to Jesus with mixed motives, but Jesus embraces Peter with pure love. Jesus can and will rescue people like Peter and people like us over and over and over and over again from death. Because on the cross, Jesus drowned in our fears. In his humanity, Jesus drowned in the death and the abuse and the relational failure and the physical disease. But Jesus in his divinity walked on that water even too. After three days of wind and waves, the storm ceased and Jesus, the son of God, rose again from the deadly deaths. Got one more story, then I'm done. Okay? It's a really incredibly honest article about a tennis pro named Marty Fish. Okay, I don't know if you knew who this person is. Okay? How he climbed the top 10 of men's tennis. But, like, right when he made it, top 10, he's playing Roger Federer, fourth round, U.S. Open, under the lights, center court, Arthur Ashe Stadium. He all of a sudden gets a panic attack on the way to the court. It's his second panic attack in a row. He's playing in the 2012 U.S. Open, and it's his dad's birthday even, and he's dying hours before the match. And Fish writes sort of how it built there. The internal storm began with dissatisfaction, uncontrollably nervous thoughts. Then he started to experience heart arrhythmia, trouble sleeping, and full-blown panic attacks. Okay, first, by the way, earlier at the U.S. Open and the match before. And look, I don't think Marty Fish is a Christian, but he begged something. He begged someone to make the storm of anxiety go in that moment, but it didn't. It didn't. Okay? And Fish didn't play that match. In fact, he didn't play the rest of the U.S. Open. He, in fact, quit his professional career at that moment. But three years later, Fish writes this article, and he comes upon a truth at the very end of it that Simon Peter or any other Christian could agree with. 
He writes that he's not ashamed to show his weakness. Weakness is okay, he says. It's normal. And that confessed weakness, confessed weakness is ultimately the only reliable form of strength in this life. Confessed weakness is the only reliable form of strength in this life. Lord, save me. That's all we got. Would you bear with me? Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for these students. Um, and I pray that you just be um, with the settling of it. Uh, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's hard, but it's really beautiful. And I pray that you'd help us to see um, there's much for us to do, but there's more for you to do, Jesus. And we ask these things, uh, to see these things, to know these things, to feel your love, Jesus, wherever we are. In your name we pray. Amen.